Hey everybody, this is Ray Felsch and this is episode 56 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone's having a good week out there. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving to those of our American listeners. Uh, I, apparently I was taking Thanksgiving week off. That wasn't intentional. Uh, just things got out of hand as far as my time went. I got caught up in something and had a little fight with my son to get him to go to bed and got him in bed and realized, oh, I haven't recorded part of the podcast and I just spent an hour and a half getting him to go to bed. So he's in the room where my equipment is. So, oh, well, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, sorry to have missed a week, but we're on board. I have episodes for months right now, so I'm not missing. If I miss a week, I'm not missing it because I don't have content. Uh, I have so much recorded already and then set up to record more. So I'm in really good shape. But let's get to this week's episode. Uh, this is a movie that's not in my usual domain. Uh, a racing film from 2012, Rush. Uh, which you may have missed because it kind of raced in and out of theaters, and that is not the last of the bad racing-related puns that you will get over the course of this episode. They don't come from me for a change, surprisingly. They come from our guest John Vaughn from the Film Rush podcast, another movie podcaster, and it was great to sit down and talk with John. Now, at the very beginning of the episode, you'll hear a comment about how he came highly recommended by Price, and I'm talking, of course, about Price Ash, previous guest of the podcast. Uh, when I went searching for guests and John signed up to do it, Price immediately sent me a message saying, hey, he'll be a great guest, and he, I certainly wasn't disappointed I had a great time talking about this movie, even though it's not in my usual area, but uh, I'm glad that we got a chance to talk about it, and uh, Price was right, and I hope John will come back on the show again in the future with another selection for us to discuss, because it was a real fun time getting to chat with him about movies. So here we go with 2012's Rush. You know, I told you Price said uh, you're you're a hell of a guest, so you have a lot to live up to. But I don't know a ton about you myself, so uh, why don't you just start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, so I'm mostly just a film enthusiast, but I went to Missouri State University and ended up studying uh, film and video production as well as uh, screenwriting for television and film. And over time, just watched way too many movies for it to be healthy and ended up forming <laughs> a style of critique. I suppose you could call it maybe not necessarily professional quality, but I always loved talking about movies and my wife got tired of hearing me talk about movies. And so I thought, Hey, my cousin's a cinephile. So we formed a podcast and, and here I am. That's pretty much the, the lineup. Okay, so I have to ask, because of the terms you used, you described yourself as a film enthusiast, but your cousin as a cinephile. So in your mind, what is the difference between those two things? Well, the difference is really just a matter of volume. Um, <laughs> I can't necessarily speak to the accuracy of how many films specifically my cousin has seen, but I would argue that he has seen more than me, which if I was able to pull a number out of my head of how many I've exactly seen his number being higher than mine is obscene. Oh, um, okay. You know, I, I've seen a lot of movies uh, over the years, but he just consumes them, you know, like as if it was sustenance. Um, he'll have far more movies 
on his list. I mean, he's got Letterboxd, which is a social media site basically for film uh, nerds. And uh, I have an account as well. But man, he logs films. He makes lists. You know, he's got top horror films, top dramas, top superheroes. You know, he very much uh, just absorbs it and 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 barfs it back out pretty much. Uh, And I I I watch a lot of movies, but I am much more of a repeat viewer than he is as well. So that kind of slows my consumption down, I would say. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm on Letterboxd. Um, I, I advertise it on the podcast every week, and I don't really have a big social network on there. But then again, I don't really use it. Uh, I get on like once a week or twice a week and rate, you know, whatever movies I've seen recently or add movies to my you know watch list that other people have recommended. But that's about it. Yeah, I wish I was that regular about it. I honestly haven't touched it probably now with in the past month. Uh, anytime it comes up on the podcast, if anyone has any hope of being entertained by my cousin or I, uh, I tell them to follow Logan because he uh, every day, every week, at least he's definitely logging stuff and has activity. I don't so much, but we're the reverse when it comes to like Twitter. Um, so like <laughs> I post every day on Twitter and I make snide remarks. I post articles and such on Twitter, but he's pretty much never on there. So, I mean, you kind of it's kind of a toss up with us on which one you're going to get more active. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So what kind of movies are your jam? What uh, what do you go for when you just are sitting down to just watch any kind of movie without any agenda? Um, so I'm kind of a cornball and I like movies that are, are, are basically really honest about what they are. You know, I, I can't really nail myself down to one genre because every time I try, I'm like, well, then I have all these other movies that don't fit that. So. I really love fantasy movies, but for the most part, the fantasy genre is pretty dry um, in terms of variety. I really like action movies, but there's a ton of crappy action movies. And (laughs) I really love superhero movies. And they're, you know, superhero movies are pretty much dominated by Marvel these days, but I also just enjoy them in general. Um, But like, I like John Wick. uh, I like Lord of the Rings. I like pretty much all the Marvel movies uh, with a few uh, standouts not really making the list. But most of them, the common theme is like, oh, there's the hero, uh, the one you're supposed to root for. And then there's the villain. And then maybe there's a few other more complex elements to it. You know, maybe they're changing up the formula here and there. But for the most part, you can usually predict what the film's going to be like. I do like other more complex stuff, but those tend to be the movies that I revert to at my like basic instinct. That's really interesting given the movie you picked and some of the things that I want to say about it, but we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> but it's almost the antithesis of everything you just said. Uh, so you you said movies that are honest about, is that what you mean by being honest about what they are? You know, yeah, pretty they, much. So like okay. you're going to an Iron Man movie, you're going to root for Iron Man. And right. that's pretty much what that is. And and while simplicity sometimes bores people, that's pretty much the the uh, the comfort food for me. It's the the chicken and dumplings of movies. Um, if I'm going into something more complex, it's going to be a little bit longer before I see something uh, like that again. Like, you know, I'm not going to watch The Departed. And then the next week, I'm not going to watch uh, Interstellar. You know, I'm not going to you know, put those back to back and they're not necessarily comparable, but they're all, and I enjoy them both, but I'm not going to consume them as often. Okay. So I, I have to ask, even though it's completely off topic because of what you just said, who, who's the hero of Avengers infinity war? 
Uh, so I mean, there's a couple definitions of that. Uh, yeah, so, what's what's John's definition of it? <laughs> so the hero of Infinity War in general is uh, probably Thor. If I'm being totally honest, if you just look at it from a base level, it's the movie focuses a lot on his journey and uh, the the trauma he suffered at the beginning of the film, his goal of revenge. But if you're going by movie talk, he's kind of the antagonist because really the hero slash protagonist of the movie is Thanos. Right. Um, but who I'm rooting for is Thor. So he's the hero of the film, so to speak. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I, I saw the movie two, three times in theaters, which is unusual for me. Um, but it's one of those that I took my son to see. And that's almost always a separate trip because I have to check it out first because he's still pretty young. Sure. And um, actually, no, I did not take him to see it in the theater. So I guess I only saw it a couple times in the theater and then and on home. Uh, and it, it wasn't until I had seen it two or three times that. I heard the theory about Thanos being the protagonist. And when you think about it that way, it completely changes how you watch the movie. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, it's, I, I think people underestimate the subtleties of just changing perspective in a film. You know, when you look at an infinity war, just on the surface, like, Oh, it's another Marvel superhero film. You know, I'm going to guess there's a big battle at the end. I'm going to guess some superheroes do some super things and you're right. But it's not about Iron Man. It's not about Thor. It's about the bad guy. The guy who wants to murder half the galaxy is the lead character. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, when you think of it in those terms, you're like, oh, wow, there is a little bit more to it if I dig a little further than the, just the surface. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So the podcast is called Have Not Seen This. We talk about movies we're surprised people have not seen. What are your have not seen this movies? What are the movies that people, maybe your cousin, give you a hard time about not having seen? Uh, well, the, the, da the downside of that question is because of my podcast, I have, we specifically watch a lot of movies, um, that we, we have not seen, um, each week we assign each other new movies. So some of the big ones that people would, would be shocked by, uh, we've already passed up, but trying to think off the top of my head of something that's big that people would be upset by, Oh, do, 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 do. I love when I have podcasters on because they don't want dead air. So they make all kinds of sounds to make sure that it's not <laughs> well, dead air. Making there. sounds is also just kind of a habit of mine. You'd ask anyone in my life. They'll be like, yeah, he's, he pretty much never shuts up. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just recently, I just uh, watched um, Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. And that's one okay. that a lot of people are like, wow, you haven't seen that movie. And uh, I, I always say like, oh yeah, I guess I'll see that sometime. Uh, a recent one that's come out that everyone's always shocked I haven't seen yet is A Star Is Born. Uh, okay, that kind of that kind of came and went on my radar. It's still definitely on the list. It's definitely something that I can be assigned on the podcast at any given moment. But I just never I never caught it. Um, those kinds of movies. Um, I, okay. I I miss Doctor Sleep. I really wanted to see Doctor Sleep, and anyone who claims to be a fan of uh, the original horror movie that's based on would say, well, why haven't you seen that? And be like, ah, I don't know, shrug. <laughs> and and all three that you just listed are movies I have not seen. Um, I know. But I'm in kind of the same position where Nightcrawler has been on my list for a long time. And I, I think I've forgotten about it. But when as soon as you said it, it was like, oh, yeah, I still need to see that. And I, I didn't have any interest in A Star is Born. 
Um, but uh, um, Doctor Sleep is on HBO Max right now, I believe, and it's yes. it's on my list to watch this month. So for sure. <laughs> yeah, I need I need to get the wife to see um, The Shining first. She's never seen The Shining, but she has an interest in it. She's not much of a horror fan, but I think that it it's not as it's not like. Um, it's not like the horror films we get today to the point where it's going to like terrify her in her sleep. Um, right. So she feels a little more confident watching that. So we're going to see The Shining at some point. If we ever get a hold of it or it comes on streaming somewhere, uh, check that out. And then we'll watch Dr. Sleep because she needs that relevant context. Uh, she's she has a cinephile bone in her, but she's not necessarily as obsessive as uh, as Logan and I. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into the movie you are you brought to the show to actually discuss this week, which is Rush from 2013, written by Peter Morgan, directed by Ron Howard, starring Daniel Bruhl, Chris Hemsworth, Olivia Wilde, and Alexandra Maria Lara. Emergency. That was the racetrack. There's been an accident. Driver's been injured. He's coming in now. Hello. I think the racetrack telephoned ahead that I was coming. Hunt, James Hunt. I had a friendly disagreement with another driver about his wife. Why? What did he do? I'd be happy to show you if you like. James can be a loose cannon, but in terms of raw talent, there is no better driver in the world. Why don't they make it safer? Risk of death turns people off. It's Nicky Lauda. He's just been signed by Ferrari. They're both quicker than you. It better at setting up the car. James Hunt is a proven winner at the highest level. Is there a question? Why are you just trying to piss me off? This is an incredible battle between these two drivers. So I always start by asking, how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? How do you sell someone who hasn't seen it on seeing this movie? Um, so it's, this movie is focused primarily on the relationship between two rival drivers of Nicky Lauda and James Hunt, um, back in the 1960s when Formula One was pretty much at its mythical peak in terms of just, um, cultural prominence. It's still a very popular sport. Um, but that's pretty much the era that every Formula One fan will point to as like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a classic era. Um, and it's really about analyzing these two extreme personalities of Nicky Lauda being very analytical, um, very intentional, James Hunt being uh, more of a, a, a bullhead. He charges, he drinks, he does coke. You know, he's he's a <laughs> wild uh, figure in comparison to Nicky Lauda, but they both have the same goal of being world champion of Formula One. And so what does it mean when two literally opposite people um, form this rivalry and go head to head in this extremely dangerous sport that can kill you at any given race because you're going at well over hundred miles per hour in these tiny little gas tanks, basically that can explode. Um, yeah, so I think they really said at the beginning of the movie, I, I think they said at the beginning of the movie, 25 racers start at the beginning of the season and by the end two are dead. Yeah, there's like two or three that die pretty much every single year. And it's a little unnerving when you're in a sport that has a guarantee, even if it has a guaranteed one death every year, that's still, in my opinion, too much of a chance of, well, I could be that one. And so I'm not really, I'm not down to jive with that. (laughs) So are you a Formula One fan? Uh, Not, not specifically. Um, The funny thing about that is that because of uh, Rush and, uh, the a subsequent racing film that is not uh, uh, Formula One, it's a uh, Ford v Ferrari. 
my older brother has now become a Formula One fan, um, which I think is funny. We, you know, we live in Missouri in the United States. He gets up really early in the morning to watch Formula One races on the weekend. Um, And anytime I see him, he'll talk to me about the Formula One race. And I'm just be like, I right over the head, man. I don't know. Like (laughs) the moment you get outside of the rush period of time in Formula One, you could be saying anything to me. And I will believe that that person you're talking about is a racer. And I'll believe that they're the best. I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah, I told a friend earlier today that this was going to be interesting because you are an American and Americans don't really give a care about formula one racing. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's not necessarily in our day to day. Um, it's yeah. I, I really like uh, not specifically sport movies, but I think sport movies uh, do present a unique structure when it comes to analyzing people um, specifically the motivation behind why would these two people want to be, Formula One racers, what drives them not to, you know, make a pun out of it per se, but just because it's Formula One isn't really why I checked it out, but it, it is a bonus, I think, because it is also a window into a world that I don't know a whole lot about. Right. So what's your history with this movie? It's not a very old movie. Um, so when did you see it? Uh, why, why, what's the draw to this film for you? I probably saw it about a year, maybe after it initially came out and it's, in that, in a period of time in my life where I was busy with other stuff, I was uh, right neck deep in my first year or second year, I think, in in college. So I wasn't super invested in watching a lot of movies. I hadn't even decided to start studying film specifically yet. And so when it came to this movie and a couple others, it was really my brother forcing me to watch it. <laughs> uh, I, was, uh, I think it was this movie specifically. I was at his house. Uh, one day just visiting and he sat me down and he was going to start making dinner, uh, him and his wife. And he was like, hey, I've seen this movie a thousand times, but I want you to see it. And now uh, when we're done cooking, I'll come in and watch it with you. So you sit right there. I'm going to hit play. You watch it. I'm going to go start making dinner. And so I just sat there and watched Rush. And he was right. I, I dug the holy, holy moly out of it. And I ended up watching it so many times I actually rewatched it uh, again for this appearance on this podcast. And <laughs> my wife said, did you really need to watch it again though? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to miss something. I have something I want to mention. And I mean, but honestly she was right. I didn't really need to watch it again. <laughs> so I, I have to ask, it's a question I've kind of abandoned, but I have to ask out of all of the movies out there, and especially if you do a movie podcast, I'm sure you've encountered movies that you really enjoy and are, are a, a delight to talk about out of all the movies out there. Why choose this one to come on the show and talk about? I think because it's, it'll appeal to a, a good number of people because it's not just a popcorn flick. Uh, for some reason, you're either going to find people that really love popcorn movies, such as superhero stuff, or they're going to be really polarized against it. Um, also some of the movies that I really enjoy that people haven't heard of, uh, can also be polarizing on their own. So like, I really love a movie that came out. I think it was 2017 or 18, uh, King Arthur Legend of the Sword. It's a Guy Ritchie film starring Charlie Hunnam. Uh, okay, yeah, I'm familiar that, with it. That came out and I watched it and I watched it and I watched it and I absolutely love it. There are incredible deep-seated flaws with the film uh, that I can acknowledge. Uh, I will you know, want a director's cut till the day I die because there's huge swaths of it that had to be edited out. 
but you know, the world did not like it. It's one of the biggest box office failures of history. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. But br- if, when I thought about bringing maybe even that movie to this one, it wasn't I don't think it's easily accessible. It's not on any streaming services right now, for one. And two, I was like, man, it, it's a big box office failure. So it's not going to get a lot of people's attention in the terms of, oh, I want to watch that because everyone's gonna be like, no, I specifically didn't want to watch that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I'll, I'll go with Rush because I've, I've not run into anybody who I can mention this movie to and go, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Not because they've avoided it, but because it just kind of passed by people. And that's a great way of putting it, because that's kind of how I felt about it. Um, for some reason, when you said Rush and I put that on my little spreadsheet where I keep track of guests, I didn't think about this movie. And it wasn't until last week when I was confirming with you that it was like, oh, it, is it's this movie is is this the right movie like that's <laughs> I, I i've never asked a guest before is this the version of the movie you mean and with you i had to do that because this one just kind of it's not that i avoided it it's just it just kind of passed me by i think that's a great way of putting it yeah and the thing is i think that's the case with uh unfortunately a lot of this director's filmography not because he's Bad, you know, Ron Howard has several films under his belt that a lot of people would be like, holy moly, that's a that's a classic. But no one pulls Ron Howard out of their hat when someone says, what's a director that you think is really remarkable? You know, unfortunately, it's, it's unfortunate. Nothing against Ron Howard. He does have talent. It's just I've not heard anyone say, you know what? Ron Howard is is someone that I really go to the theater to see. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> that's yeah, I mean, when I think of Ron Howard, I think of a great director. But when I think of great directors, he his name doesn't come to mind. You're right. Yeah. So it's it's weird because, you know, it's a sure thing. Well, it's not nothing's a sure thing, but it's it's quite likely that if you're in a Ron Howard movie, it's going to be enjoyable or at least competent um, as a film, if not great. But you are never going to necessarily become incredibly famous because you were in a Ron Howard film. Um, you know, Chris Hemsworth did not become famous because of Rush. Daniel Brühl did not become famous necessarily because of Rush. Um, but neither of them were, uh, they didn't have it. It wasn't a disservice to them to be in this movie by any means. In fact, no great acting on their part. And it's a good film around them, but no one talks about it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was actually one of the points I wanted to make uh, about it was I found the casting really interesting. Uh, because, you know, I mean, Hemsworth is a leading man. There is no doubt yes. about it. You look at the body of work he's had, and um, and, it, and he's just a, a good-looking guy. He's going to get butts in seats, right? For sure. Yeah. He gets my but butts Daniel... in seats. <laughs> <laughs> but Daniel Brühl was an interesting choice because he's not a leading man. He is, at best, an ensemble player or a, a supporting part usually and that's not to say he's not a talented and capable actor he just hasn't been thrust into the spotlight and then you have this movie where he kind of is yeah he's he's very much strangely enough because he's arguably the main character i i've not done the math but i would uh, nikki lauda may have more screen time than james hunt maybe they have literally equal time i don't know what the editor decided to do with this film um but nikki lauda just because of the events that occurred in his life through the events of this film uh, is arguably the main character of this movie. And well, and it starts with him. I mean, it starts yes, with his, his point of view. 
you know, telling us he's known for two things, you know, the, this un, unreasonable rivalry with Hunt and the 1st of August 76, yeah. you know, and then he doesn't tell us, which I really found interesting, he doesn't tell us what that date means, and as someone who's not at all familiar with I, any of these people or the events or F1 racing in general, that date didn't mean anything to me. So the fact that he says that and then the film jumps back six years yeah, was like, okay, you've got me intrigued. But I also found really interesting that when it jumps back six years, it changes perspective. And now you're following Hunt. Yeah, I think uh, what the film maybe is saying is that um, the more interesting journey in each person's life was happening at different points. Um, uh-huh. so while, uh, Nikki Lauda was younger, his, his story wasn't uninteresting. No one's life is necessarily uninteresting, at least not to them. And, but James Hunt was definitely going through, you know, a lot of hunt problems. He was very much a drinker, a partier, you know, nothing about him was not exciting, um, right. but Nikki, <laughs> Nikki Lauda's story picks up when he starts becoming world champion, when he gets picked up by Ferrari, when he becomes this world renowned racer, you know, that's when his story really becomes the centerpiece. Uh, before that, you know, his story is not that interesting. He's just a relatively spoiled rich kid who just happens to be getting, you know, by in this formula three. And then the moment he defies his father, to move on Ferrari, that's when he starts getting a lot more screen time and attention in the story. And I think that's the shifting point of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let me, before we get too far into the movie, let me take a look at the critical side of things. Uh, The movie was well-received. It actually was nominated for quite a few awards. It was one of the only pictures that year nominated for Best Picture for Golden Globe that did not get a Best Picture nomination for Oscar. In fact, it didn't get any Oscar nominations. Uh, Do you feel like it was snubbed? Um, I, I say at the top of my head, I can't remember what films that got award, uh, nominated in the Oscars that year in comparison to Rush. Um, 2013 is just a little too far back, but arguably, yes, at least for the performance uh, performances. I don't think the editing is necessarily anything super remarkable. The cinematography is is good, um, but I've seen better. And the... I, I think really one of the the understated elements of this film that probably should have been nominated is the score. Yes. Um, I yeah, think I'd agree with you there. The music sells a lot of the energy in this movie and really keeps you rolling. Again, not to mean another pun, but you know, it, 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 <laughs> there's plenty You're doing of them. that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of them, uh, but no, the the music does keep the pace and does keep you going along with the movie, and I think it has one of the most hypnotizing main themes that I've heard in a drama in a while. Um, And I think, yes, in that regard, it got snubbed. Just to to follow up. So the one that won the Oscar that year was 12 Years a Slave. Okay. uh, And then the other nominees that year were American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, Her, Nebraska, Philomena, and The Wolf of Wall Street. All right. Well, okay. Martin Scorsese is always going to be nominated by the Academy. That's pretty much inevitability. <laughs> um, I uh, her definitely deserves to be there. Among that list, um, I think her is my favorite for sure. Compared to a few others, yeah, I think Rush probably did get a little bit snubbed. But at the same time, in regards to the Academy, I am a pretty well-known, at least people who know me, I am a well-known uh, heavy-handed critic against the Academy. 
Um, so I think that I'm not surprised Rush didn't get nominated because of who they are. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So taking a look, sorry, again, at the critical side, I just had to bring that up. Sure. Uh, it, it sits at 88% at Rotten Tomatoes. So pretty positive review to, re- reception of the film. 74% at Metacritic. I always bring in a positive and a negative review, uh, which we can use as jumping off points or we can just ignore. Some of them do bring up some points that I'd like to discuss, though. On the positive side, the review comes f- from Peter Travers of Rolling Stone, who writes, I have a crazy hunch that Rush, about two real-life Formula One racers locking wheels and horns in 1976, may be the combustible, cheerworthy surprise it is because director Ron Howard almost didn't have the money to shoot the damn races. The early cash crisis forced screenwriter Peter Morgan, who came up aces with Howard on Frost-Nixon, to structure the script as the scariest thing known to Hollywood bottom liners, a character study. Hmm. Uh, on the flip side, the negative review comes from Kenneth Turin of the Los Angeles Times, who writes, For all his skill, Howard's on-screen instincts are inescapably square. It's not that he avoids the inevitable R-rated sex and drug scenes or even adult themes like the multiple dimensions, the good and the bad sides of rivalry. It's that his polished Hollywood style is not ideally suited to the edginess this story seems to cry out for. Unlike the charismatic Formula One racer, Ayrton Senna, the subject of a superb 2010 documentary, Senna. Both Hunt and Lauda are extremely arrogant, albeit in diametrically opposite ways. One has too much personality, the other has too little, and so the film has difficulty getting us to care about either one of them. Interesting perspective, for sure. Yeah. So any thoughts about those reviews? Uh, It's funny that the one uh, review would mention that the budget limited their ability to film the races, because honestly... Some of those sections of the races, I would argue, are are, are some of the highlights of the film. Um, so, I mean, I guess you could say a lot of the budget does go towards the end of a movie because that's where it needs to, you know, make the landing. But like that ending race uh, in Japan is some of the best, you know, weirdly specific uh, best filming of a race I've seen. Yeah, I think the point he was making, and, and again, I, who knows, but the the script. Uh, was originally written without the race scenes because Howard didn't think he could get the budget for it. So I think the point he was making is they did a more sophisticated pass on the script okay. about the characters because they weren't sure if they were going to have the race scenes and the movie benefits from that. That makes sense. And what's interesting about that is that that's what they teach you when you're learning how to write scripts. Right. Um, that's funny that they wouldn't normally do that because they had a lot of money, which makes a lot of sense given Hollywood. But um, <laughs> in screenwriting, often they'll tell you, you know, get the first draft out. You know, it's always going to be garbage. What anything you write first draft is going to be garbage. But uh, when you go back, uh, make sure you study it for each character, specifically the main characters. You know, I my my screenwriting instructor had a style that I've also adopted that when you are writing multiple characters, you do a pass for each character. You don't write it. Anybody else don't touch anybody else. You just edit for the one character. Then you go back to the beginning and do the next character and the next character, make sure they're all fleshed out and have arcs of their own that interweave with each other. And then you're done. And anything else fancy comes afterwards and is all accent pieces and, uh, and, and, and flourish. But you know, Hollywood being Hollywood, I'm not shocked. They're like, we got to have races. Oh, we can't afford the races. Well, I guess we have to write well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I, I found this, I am not a sports enthusiast at all. So sports movies are not usually my cup of tea. They're not something that I, 
Uh, I, I, sorry, I used cup of tea. I should have come up with a racing analogy, but I, you're taking all the good ones. Um, so I went into this a little hesitant because it I'm not the target audience for it. And I did find it a really interesting character-driven story. And I found it really fascinating. I, it, it dawned on me about halfway through the film that they were working really hard to have two protagonists and no antagonist, that they are yeah. antagonizing each other, but neither one of them is specifically the bad guy. Yeah. It's an intention to show uh, that literally everyone is the hero of their own story, to borrow a cliche that's very overused. Um, and it, it's true. And But at the same time, everyone has a villain in their life, but it's never the same villain for their entire life, at least not normal people. Um, so someone you may have hated when you were younger may end up becoming a fast friend later or the reverse in this situation. The real life story is that Nikki and James Hunt were very much rivals started out pretty bitter, but ended up being at least formal and at least familiar with each other by the end, if not friends. My understanding is they were friends and flatmates at times, even. Yeah. So the film doesn't really have time because, you know, movies only have about a two hour window to show a lot more of the complexities of their relationship. Um, You hear a little bit of it in the ending monologue and you see some of it in the real life footage that they use. Um, But overall, it's definitely the earlier times of their life when they were younger and more fiery, their relationship was more conflicting. And then they aged and they chilled out and realized, Hey, we don't really have time to hate each other. We might die at any point. So maybe we should chill out on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really liked it. I I mentioned it before, but the fact that that opening monologue from Lauda tells us that he doesn't even know why this rivalry exists. It's one of two things that he's known for. And yet, he doesn't even know why it exists. And when we jump back six years, we see the foundation of this rivalry start. And it really is more on Hunt's side than on uh, Lauda's. Yeah, Lauda really is just, uh, Lauda's more neutral in the sense that he's basically a wall that Hunt just slams into. Um, yes, Nikki, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, because like Nikki had no interest necessarily in conflicting with anyone. He just wanted to be a racer uh, in his very mathematical way. Um, and Hunt just being the literal polar opposite of him just slammed up against him and was like, I don't like this guy. Whoa. And that pretty much sparked it. And I mean, everyone has at least a, a small version of that in their life. You can usually think back to someone that it wasn't really anything of substance that caused you to conflict other than you just weren't really the personality types that worked at the time. Um, And I think as they got older, as everyone does, we all kind of get a little more boring. We get a little more mellow. And so our, what used to be world ending and world shattering is now no longer important. And so things chill out. I think they demonstrate that pretty well in this film Um, at the final race you see before they kick off, you see James Hunt look back at Lauda and Lauda's looking at him and they just, they wave at each other and nod and acknowledge that, you know, whoever wins, wins. This is a, you know, we might die. It's not really important. Our rivalry doesn't matter right now. It's just a matter of uh, acknowledging that we're both good racers and let's give this our best shot. Yeah. And it would be very easy for this film to have been set up as a, 
James Hunt vehicle, you know, especially putting Hemsworth in that role. It would have been very easy to make him the good guy, the party guy, and to make Lauda, you know, the bad guy. Or or vice versa. I mean, they could have humanized Lauda a little bit more and made the big, loud party dude the bad guy. And so I I really respect the fact that it shows both perspectives and and does a, a fairly good job of trying to get the audience to like both of them. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of symmetry in their presentation. You know, I've mentioned twice the, the two things that Loud is known for. And then later on in the movie, there's a, a line about how Hunt is known for two things, you know, being reckless and being amazing in bed. Yeah. But it's that it's that duality of there's two things of this guy. There's two things of this guy. And you you really quickly get a sense of they're both driven. And I, I think one of the reviews kind of put it put it really well that, you know, they're both driven, uh, arrogant in diametrically way different ways that you know hunt is uh you know this this brash loud party guy and he wants to be the best to be the best and lauda goes the opposite way he wants to analyze everything and and I, I, like i loved that scene where he gets the mechanics to adjust the car and rather than go out on the track and show up ferrari's star driver he gets Ferrari star driver to drive his modified car and it's faster. Yeah. He's he knows that, you know, while I am the better driver, just the modifications I put in makes what I consider to be an inferior driver automatically a better driver just in right. general. He's very confident. Yeah. In that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I found that a, a really interesting way to convey things. Cause again, they could have very easily have gone one side or the other. So I think the fact that they chose to, to show both uh, and, and allow the audience to, to like some element and dislike some element. I mean, there are definitely elements of uh, a hunt that we don't like and there, and, and Lauda is, you know, what's the line he says later on in the film about, you know um, you know, Nikki, every once in a while, it helps if people like you. Because Lauda is just, he, he grates on everybody. Yeah. So there's parts the of them that we like and dislike. Yeah. He, does, he doesn't really socialize after races. He doesn't have a circle of people necessarily. Um, and it, it kind of, one of the ways that it, you mentioned the duality of the two, uh, the, the one of, the, I think, the most obvious way it does that uh, is in their relationships, specifically their romantic relationships. Um, so Hunt has Olivia Wilde as uh, the... Uh, relationship for him. I'm trying to remember her character's name off the top of my head, but I do not. Susie Miller. There it is. Uh, so Susie, they get married in a quick, quick heat of passion and it fizzles out in a pretty spectacular fashion. Um, but in comparison, Nikki Lauda ends up with Marlene uh, and they remain rock steady you know, because of his intentional personality of how he doesn't really go into anything without, you know, the intention of following through while James Hunt just kind of flares up and fizzles out, flares up and fizzles out. And so the relationships do as well. Um, but the only constant in James Hunt life is Nikki, really. Right. And and it kind of, as you said about it, jumping back six years and showing these men were interesting at different points in time, their relationships kind of follow that same track where Hunt gets involved and then the marriage falls apart. And as the marriage is falling apart, that kind of prompts Lauda to move forward with a relationship like, you know, oh, maybe I do want somebody in my, you know, in my corner. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it speaks 
volumes of his decision making in that sense and his deliberate timing on the fact that, you know, that relationship, it wasn't it wasn't a very old or necessarily settled relationship by the time he had the event in 1976 and their relationship remained, you know, like that, that's something that can make or break stuff. Um, and yet it remained. And while in comparison, James Hunt was, he just kind of, he burned his relationship again, a pun for anyone who knows what the event in 1976 was uh, to the ground. (laughs) That was not intentional. It just came up to my brain. That's, that's three. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very punny. You know, it, it comes. I almost felt like the movie was saying, and I don't think it was intentionally saying that, but, um, Hunt is, is having a lot of challenges, and when his marriage splits up and he's going back to being super bachelor, let me sleep with whatever beautiful woman's around and party and coke and whatever, his performance at the track goes back up. Like, he starts doing better without the baggage of somebody else in his life, whereas Lauda almost does better with someone in his life. Yeah, and it kind of well, it's a little bit back and forth. Lauda ends up uh, dropping dropping it in the end because of who's in his life, um, but that's mostly because of his philosophy that he had that once you're happy and you feel you have something to lose, that's when your racing suffers. Um, yeah, I want to talk. There were two lines that are related to relationships that that came up. Um, the first is when Hunt is fighting with his wife. And he says something along the lines of don't go to a man willing to kill himself driving in circles looking for normality. Yeah. Which I thought was a really like I liked that line. Like that was a really interesting line to throw in because it's true. These guys are not going to be the definition of normal if that's what you're looking for in your life. Yeah, there's there's definitely wiring that's unique to them in their brains, you know, um, to boil them down to the most simplest of terms. You know, you could call them adrenaline junkies. Um, But. I would say it goes beyond that because adrenaline junkies, you're you're pursuing the rush, uh, another pun, um, and oh, <laughs> you uh, you're you're pursuing that 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 rush of adrenaline just for the sake of it. But with this kind of racing, it requires a certain level of devotion, which is funny that James Hunt even has this um, to really buckle down. I'm going to make myself stop at some point, but the <laughs> we're going to start hitting the bell every time you make one. <laughs> really, uh, settle in and do the work to be able to make the right turns, uh, gear shift at the right spots to know. <laughs> See, I don't know if that was a pun. But <laughs> gear, gear shift in a movie about racing and you're not sure that was a pun. Well, but the, uh, the, the, the level of dedication it takes to be good at this this uh, sport is more than just uh, chasing adrenaline. But at the same time, that is something that has to be in you. Like I and and you may you you may have the the patience to become good at Formula One, but I don't think you have the drive to even start trying. And I think Ow, that hurts, man. <laughs> that was my secret dream. <laughs> I want to be a Formula One racer. When you picked this movie, I was like, ah, oh, it's fate. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, just, I just don't think that you can be a Formula One racer without the the baseline of being an adrenaline junkie. But then you're something else on top of that, which arguably might be even more unstable because you're so dedicated to being in a deadly sport. 
Um, well, which goes again with that duality, which is w- what started this, which is the other quote that I wanted to bring up about relationships, which was the one you were referencing a minute ago that Lauda says to his wife, happiness is the enemy because if you're happy, you have something to lose. Yep. And that, that ties into his mathematical uh, way of thinking of racing. Um, I think he says there's 20% risk in any given race. Yes. Yeah. He will accept 20% no more. Yes. And the happiness is a factor in the math, so to speak, that doesn't really increase the risk, but it does make the risk more intimidating. It makes that 20% more daunting. And that alone does kind of make it feel like it raises. And that's his logic. But then his wife says back, you know, the moment you say happiness is the enemy, you've already lost. And I think that's that was a line that challenged his personal philosophy to where it, it made him think, well, I've been kind of going along and I've I've started this relationship and I'm in this marriage. And I think he this is kind of reading into it. I don't know exactly what Nikki Lauda's uh, real life thought process was on this, but perhaps it was that he realized while racing was the most important thing to me, maybe it's not that happiness is the enemy. Maybe it's just that the priorities shifted, that racing is important, but it's my wife first and racing second. It's, you know, not because racing is not everything that I live for, but because I am alive with my wife, not necessarily for her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I thought the, the happiness is the enemy kind of tied into that adrenaline junkie idea you have, but I really like the path that you've gone with Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, that does become, it it definitely appeals to his uh, more mathematical systematic approach to things, but it also does kind of show where his character goes. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's again, you mentioned the the duality of these characters and this film really is pretty much structured in the sense of for every reaction, for every action, there's equal reaction when it comes to Nikki and James back and forth. And that sort of is the balancing teeter totter of the movie. And that even goes so far as into the micro environment of the races where James is now single, alone, focused, and he risks his life. James is now, or I'm sorry, Nikki is now in a relationship. He's happy and he chooses not to risk his life. And that's the final balancing act in the film, which makes them both champions, which arguably makes them ultimately balanced. And Thanos would be proud (laughs) (laughs) to bring it back to the Avengers conversation. Well, and that's, I found that really interesting early in the movie that there's a kind of a montage or, or I guess not a montage, but a juxtaposition between the two in the in intercut. And so you see Hunt winning. And I think this is when they're making the transition or they're still in the Formula 3 level, which I didn't even know that was a thing. And, and Hunt is winning and he is partying and he's celebrating. And Lauda is at the garage where he is all business. And that's where he's, I guess, making the changes to the car. And it was this juxtaposition between the party guy and the businessman. And I really liked that until they decided they had to overtly spell that out for the audience. And there's a line that almost flat out says that's what they're doing with the characters. Which part are you referring to? I, you know, it's funny. I thought I had written it down in my notes and somehow I missed it. But the, there was a line in there that was specifically talking about that. I, it's a confrontation between them where Lauda says flat out. Um, it could be. It's. I think it's once they're both in Formula One. Um, yes. And it's after uh, it's post a race and James is drinking a beer. It's right after, I think, um, 
I think the moment you're referring to is yes. right after he's lost his wife. And uh, he's talking about how everyone likes him. And Nikki's like, yeah, but they're all assholes. And it's not real. You know, their smiles and their laughing at your jokes is actually a sign of disrespect because they don't really believe in you. They don't really like you. And James is positing, well, it's better than just, you know, being a mopey, you know, loner all the time. Um, and it is it's it's definitely a on the nose confrontation of their philosophy smacking into each other. But it kind of is inevitable in a film like this. Yeah, I just think they could have left it more subtle. But that's my personal sure. opinion. It's not the first time I've said that about a movie. It won't be the last time because sometimes there are people who need it spelled out for You're them. saying Hollywood's not <laughs> subtle. <laughs> you, you just crossed the finish. No, that's not going to work at all. Um. So the one thing I did not like about this movie is, and, and this is a criticism I had about another recent movie, uh, is the, the mouthpiece that they made him wear to portray Lauda. Because Lauda had a very kind of rat-like appearance, which they make lots of rat comments about him. And I almost wish they could have just done that with the, the actor's normal mouth in, instead of making him wear what feels like a pretty obvious dental appliance. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I just recently watched um, a film that has a similar situation. Um, I watched uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's the film I was referring to. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I watched that for the the podcast uh, just this last uh, week. Uh, that's this week's episode. And the uh, that mouthpiece, I, I, I get what you're saying because I don't know. Rush didn't necessarily bother me, but because of Bohemian Rhapsody, I get what you're saying. And while, again, as you said, I understand why it happened because of the real life person that's being portrayed. But at the same time, it definitely did distract at points. Um, And I can see how this one, uh, Nicky Lauda's mouthpiece, would also distract. It's also a credit to both actors, Bohemians, uh, Rami Malek and Rush's um, Daniel Bruhl that somehow they worked past it. You know, if anyone's had even just a mouth guard in their mouth and tried to speak, you know, that is, it's a trial. It's definitely a hurdle to overcome. And these guys had to do it for an entire film and make it seem like it was just a natural part of their mouth. Um, And Brule had to do an accent while... Had to do an accent, had to speak randomly in uh, German, I believe. Yes, um, and Austrian. Austrian. Yeah, no, I, no, he is speaking German. Okay. You're right. Um, and so, yeah, he he had a lot of heavy lifting to do for this performance. And so, as you mentioned, you know, he's never been given the leading man treatment per se. But I think that uh, a lot of people underestimate how much this movie really should have put him on the radar in terms of getting him those bigger roles. And maybe he's, he could be very content with where he is now. I mean, he's about to be in Marvel's um, winter soldier and Falcon show. Yes. Um, And that's probably going to be a pretty steady paycheck and role for him uh, for the foreseeable future. And who knows, maybe he'll uh, have some pretty weighty acting in that. But I do think that I haven't seen enough of him since 2013. And that was seven years ago. So yeah, that's that's a good point. He, he this should have made his star shine a little brighter. I did find it funny that both of the leads do have you know Marvel connections because of course he played the villain in Civil War, which is the one film that Thor was absent. <laughs> yeah, they didn't. They literally have crossover, but they don't have any literal crossover. 
It's, right. it's interesting. So if I'm going to criticize the, the mouthpiece, I, I need to praise the other makeup effects that are in this. Um, there is a wreck that we see uh, someone being carried away from with like exposed Ooh, bone. Yeah. That's a, that's a cringe. That got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> but then, so for those who don't know the story, which I didn't, on that date that Lauda references, the 1st of August, 76, he is in a horrific Formula One wreck and uh, ends up being massively burned. And the makeup job they did on him and the makeup job they do as he's going through these treatments, he's having tubes shoved down to drain fluid out of his lungs. I mean, it's it, it the 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 makeup, the effects are quite vivid yes. and quite well done. Oh yes. They uh they make him feel like he is definitely burned. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't be difficult if I was in the actor's shoes and I had that makeup job put on me and I looked myself in the mirror, it wouldn't be difficult to imagine uh imagine it it would be difficult to imagine the pain because i don't think anyone can really uh reasonably uh, conceive of it but in terms of the concept you'd be able to really feed into that in your performance and i think brule did a good job with that yeah no i agree i mean that's and i and i again if they hadn't made the character sympathetic i don't know that they would have been able to play that off as well but even as much of an asshole as he kind of is with people not liking him, you do feel sympathy, especially when he's in this, in this wreck, especially because of the confrontation that happens before the race where he wants to cancel this race. Yes. Because that's the speech where he brings up the 20%. He is willing to risk his life. He knows that every time he goes out there, there's a 20% chance that he's going to die, but he is not willing to go above 20% and the rain you know, brings that. Yeah. And arguably it's, it's a, it's a two factor system that sort of swings it uh, against him where he doesn't want to do the race, but James swings the room um, to actually right. do the race. But at the same time, James was aided by the unlikability of Lada because he taunts all the racers. He said, you know, he's like, I'm faster than all of you. So I could totally do this race if I wanted to. But I don't want to because it's dangerous. And everyone's like, well, if you're faster than us, then let's do, let's do the race. Uh, and it, it sort of taunts these adrenaline junkies on like you're not going to win an argument by telling them that you're better than them. <laughs> well, and I, and I like where that ends up leading the, when the scene when Nikki comes back where he does uh, apologize to Lauda for being responsible for that race even happening. Yeah. Because if he was responsible for the race happening, then he was responsible for Nikki crashing. And Nikki, it's hokey. I got to admit, it is absolutely hokey, but I still liked it. Nikki saying, you may have been responsible, but you also were responsible for me getting back in the race car. Because when I was in the hospital, I was watching you win and that was driving me to get back here. Well, yeah. And, you know, whenever you're in that sort of situation, uh, I can't speak to personal experience, but I would imagine anything that you can uh, latch on to to get your body to cooperate and survive uh, does, you know, get into hyper focus. And so while racing was important to him at the time, I can't imagine the sort of rack focus onto racing. It became where I'm in incredible pain, um, but it's more painful for me to watch you win races than it is for me to have, you know, third degree burns. <laughs> <laughs> so that does kind of lead to the, the the final monologue has a um a, a question that basically comes down to is having an enemy 
a a curse or a blessing. It is one of my favorite speeches, to be honest, in a film. Um, yeah. So what what do you think? Is having an enemy a curse or a blessing? I think having enemy may not necessarily be the word that I would choose to use, but I think rivals can't be under or overstated per se. Um you know, in any field you're in that's highly competitive, you got to have a goal to reach. And often that goal is someone that might be doing it better than you, or at least is doing it different than you and you are aspiring uh, to do. And, you know, not to put too much focus on uh, myself, but like in, in the podcast game, there's there's a lot of competition here. Um <laughs> like a lot. I think people underestimate it. Um, but you know, so in that situation, you can't get too focused on the amount of people around you that are also doing it. You have to focus on the achievable goals. And often that's, hey, I like what that person's doing or where that person has got to. You know, it's not necessarily Joe Rogan who's got millions of downloads every episode. It's just that next step ahead. I like that guy. I'd like to be. Uh, in the same area as them. So you just kind of take that step forward, take that step forward. So having rivals definitely makes life seem a little more like a staircase rather than a cliffside. Um, and so that is important. And I think 2013, I was, uh, I think I was around 18 years old. And so that, oh, God. <laughs> I did say I was going to college. Um, and the, uh, so that that is kind of a lesson that you need to start learning at that point because when you're going to college it's about finding self-motivation at that point you're not really being held on or, you know held your hands not being held anymore um so it's about finding the steps forward that you think are achievable and that you're going to shoot for um and i think that what that's the point of that speech is you know when you have an enemy in life it drives you to achieve what you think the enemy uh uh would want you to not achieve. Um, it's it's weird. It's a weird positive message, um, but it's, it's right. one of my favorite <laughs> remarks in the film. Yeah, no, I I liked it quite a bit. All right, what have I not touched upon that you want to hit on before we move into the end credits here? Um, what did you think of the color of the film? It's kind of weirdly specific, but it is something that I notice every time. They chose a very specific color grade for this film. Yeah, and I liked it. I mean, I I felt like. It, it was part of uh, setting this the setting for the movie you know that this is a movie set in the 70s and we always think back to the past as being more sepia colored especially the farther we go back and i, I feel like it kind of played on that to some degree yeah uh it's it's definitely where the the mate a lot of people point to the matrix as like one of the examples that they have for uh colors because you know, the matrix formed a lot of people's uh, interest in film at large. And so people are like, wow, when they're in the real world, it's blue. When they're in the matrix, it's green. Um, so for this film, they really heightened some colors and it seems like deadened others. Um, uh, yes, I it's, think it's so. difficult to define because the reds really pop and so do the yellows, but then, other colors have almost a green hue to them. Like people's skin tones are almost a little more green than in real life. Um, and I'm not really sure how they got that or how they settled on it, but it is something that I've not seen repeated ever, even in other films that are trying to do the seventies. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, and just a small thing. What did you think of? So at the very end of the film, uh, there's the real life footage of Nikki Lauda yes, and James Hunt. That. In context of those, the, the footage you see of the real people, 
how do you feel uh, uh, in hindsight uh, with the casting of Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Bruhl? Once I saw what the the real people looked like, I was amazed at the casting and the mouthpiece made a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I, boy, they, the, with Chris Hemsworth, I mean, again, he's, he's just a handsome guy. He's a specimen. But he got cast because he also was playing a handsome guy. Oh, yeah. No, uh... <laughs> if you uh, if you do a cursory glance at any history of uh, Hunt in, in my more bored days when I first saw this film, I definitely did. He had a reputation for uh, an unreasonable amount of time in the bedroom, you know, right. to the point of like it makes Brad Pitt probably sweat. <laughs> and it's pretty incredible. But it's funny because they are incredibly accurate in terms of uh, casting. But at the same time, they're very Hollywood like. The two James Hunt and Nikki Lauda in real life, you're like, oh yeah, those two, those look like two normal guys. And then you look at Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brew, you're like, oh yeah, those are the Hollywood versions of those two guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it, right. But it doesn't detract from their performance. It's just interesting to me that like it's so accurate, but also at the same time, so um, what would you call it? Rose-colored glasses, kind of. It makes them yes. very much more flattering physically than they were in real life while they were still not nece- they weren't necessarily ugly in real life by any means but like hollywood's right. a different scale <laughs> yeah yeah well i am I'm, I'm always reminded uh, you know when when somebody was talking to me about hollywood and i was like what hollywood doesn't really glorify people and this was when buffy the vampire slayer was on tv and they were like willow's their idea of homely uh you know allison hannigan is hollywood's version of homely it's like oh yeah that's that's, that's, that's a good true. point yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, before we go, I got a couple of short little games for you to play. Uh, First up is The Algorithm Says. This is a list of movies various algorithms say you will like because you liked this movie. So this is like a lightning round of response from you, whether you liked these movies, didn't like these movies, don't understand how the hell they're connected, which I got to be honest with you, I don't understand how the hell most of these are connected. (laughs) This is the weirdest Algorithm Says I've had in a while. I'm glad I could provide. (laughs) So first up, Logan. Love it. I kind of get that one. Uh, Okay, explain it. Uh, I think just in this, (laughs) on the surface level, it's a character study um, and the the color of the film. I don't know why. I don't know if that would factor into an algorithm at all. But I kind of get. I kind of get the style choice. Okay. All right. Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, I have no idea why that would be there. Honestly, (laughs) I also have never seen Hacksaw Ridge all the way through. um, So I'm not sure. Me neither. I don't know. Okay. Warrior. Uh, I get it. The relationship thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I also love that movie. Okay. I do too. I'm glad to hear somebody else say something positive. It's about good. It. <laughs> I actually watched that just this year again. And I was like, man, I need to watch this more often. Yeah. I haven't seen it since it was in theaters, but it's such a good it cast. Is. All right. Million dollar baby. Uh, never watched it. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know personally why it would be compared to this film. I don't really have an opinion on it. Okay. Snatch. Uh, remind me what that one is. That's the Guy Ritchie, um, Irish right, the Brad mob Pitt piece. crime film. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Maybe the time period, but I I like that movie. I like Guy Ritchie. <laughs> um, but I don't know necessarily why that'd be related. Okay, First Man. Duh. My best guess is style. Um, <laughs> First Man has nothing to do with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right catch me if you can i have no idea none 
You don't know that movie? Uh, oh, it's. I think it's the relationship between the adversaries. Tom Hanks and Leo DiCaprio? Right. I was thinking of a, a different movie with the name Catch in it. Um, uh, <laughs> man, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I Yeah, I'm not surprised that necessarily came up. Yeah. Um, Rocky. Uh, I mean, sports. I mean, I love yeah. Rocky, but that's just surface level sports. <laughs> uh, Into the Wild. Into the Wild. Mm, I don't know. I, I like that movie, but I don't know why that's in the algorithm. Yeah, I again, this it is, is the weirdest weird, algorithm I've ever seen. And then the last one is Rounders. Never seen that. Oh, that's a poker movie. Yeah, I, I, I remember uh, seeing it, at least the poster. I've never uh, never considered it for any long period of time. It's great. It's Matt Damon and uh, Ed Norton. And I think it's the adversarial relationship, again, is kind of the theme Most likely. That. All right, we always end with a pop quiz. Four multiple choice questions based on the movie that you've picked. Are you ready? Oh, as I'll ever be, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number one, the real Nikki Lauda was still alive in 2013 and was able to see this film's adaptation of events from his life. After watching the movie, he voiced a regret about the film. What was it? A, he wished he came across as more personable. B, he wished he hadn't raced the Nuremberg race. C, he wished James Hunt also could have seen it. Or D, he wished Hemsworth had played him. Uh, I believe it's the, he wished Hunt could have seen it. Yep, that was his biggest regret was that Hunt was not around yep. to see it at that point. Uh, number two, the film had a scripted scene that saw a confrontation between James Hunt and the man his wife left him for, Richard Burton. What actor from past projects did director Ron Howard intend to play Burton? A, Jim Carrey. B, Tom Hanks, C, Frank Langella, or D, Russell Crowe? Oh, I hope it's Russell Crowe. I don't know the answer to this. <laughs> it absolutely was Russell Crowe. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he totally would have been right yeah. for that part. Uh, number three, one of the rival drivers at the catastrophic Nuremberg race is Jochen Moss. While he's only a background character in the movie, his presence is notable for what reason? A, that really is Moss playing the role. B, that's actually Moss's son playing the part. C, Moss was one of the drivers who saved Lauda. Or D, Moss wasn't actually at the Nuremberg race. Uh, I do not know. I mean, honestly, uh, the him portraying himself doesn't sound like it's a real thing. His son being uh, the portraying him does sound because, I mean, he has like no screen time. Um, and but again, I don't know who I know there were two or three drivers that helped Nikki when he crashed, but I don't know the answer to this one. Well, I'll take a guess. His son. No, it actually is him playing the wow. part. Wow. Okay. Um, there is a there is another driver that raced with these gentlemen uh, whose name was Guy Edward, and his son plays him. In ah, the movie. tricky, tricky. Uh, so that's a different, but that's a different yeah. person. But uh, yeah, it really is y Jochen Moss playing. That'd the be part. surreal. <laughs> All right, and number four. Before it opened, the film was screened for the F for the uh, uh, Formula One industry, a group made up of drivers and team bosses. They loved the film, but before he got their response, Ron Howard called it his toughest test screening since what movie? A. Grand Theft Auto. B. Apollo thirteen. C. The Da Vinci Code. Or D. Frost Nixon. Um. Oh boy, there's two that I think it could be. Um, I would probably say Apollo 13 because I think it probably screened in front of NASA. That's absolutely yeah. right. And that was the toughest screening he had had up till this point. So both real movies, you know, movies about real people yeah. that are being screened by people who knew them. Yeah, specifically so, yeah. experts. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs>
<laughs> All right, man. Uh, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? All right. Well, you guys can find us. Uh, we are Film Rush Podcast. You can find us on YouTube. We have a channel. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or iTunes. Uh, give us a follow there. We're up every Wednesday. You know, I am John Vaughn, or I'm also known on Twitter as the LA Gold. That's my most active social media. So that's probably the most worthwhile uh, to go to. Uh, I post extra articles and whatnot, mostly as well as the episodes each week and pretty much uh, the YouTube channel I'd like to promote. We're we're looking forward to putting out more than just the podcast on it, additional videos and content down the road. Um, so if you guys could be there for when that happens, that'd be fantastic. So that's a uh, check out our YouTube channel. Fantastic. You don't want to promote your letterboxd account. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can go there, but there's going to be a lot of spiders and cobwebs. all right man thank you so much Uh, you know this is not my cup of tea as a movie as i said um and and i do think it has some problems with it as far as the presentation goes but it was fun chatting with you about it and it was it was fun to finally to just to sit down and watch it so i really appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me this was uh this was a fun hour talking about rush you know you and you wouldn't necessarily watch this movie and think oh this is gonna be a gas to talk about but hey it was fun One last note before I say goodbye. Uh, It is December, and I decided rather than try and get a Christmas movie in this year, uh, I'm going to do kind of children's movies for the month of December. Family-friendly films. They aren't always, you know, family-friendly discussions because we do keep the explicit tag on the podcast. But these are some movies that you might have enjoyed in your childhood. Uh, Just ended up having a run of these movies and thought, oh, I'll group them together and uh, put them out during December. So for the child in all of us to celebrate the holidays, we're going to look at some children's movies. But that does it for this week. You can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Rush, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook where I Have Not Seen This podcast, and you can email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. If we want to get Miss Piggy out of jail, we're going to have to catch those thieves bread-handed. Yes, Bo? What color are their hands now? This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to John Vaughn providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.